The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Lord. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them he addressed this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he does find it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy, and upon his arrival home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins and losing one, would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I lost. In just the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country, where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat, but here I am, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, quickly bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field and on his way back as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. 
that when your son returns, who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Jesus mentions being lost about four or five times in our gospel today. What does it mean to be lost, for God to lose? It should be noted that it's not because God, in a sense, misplaces or loses or casts away. You know, it's not like the Father's up in heaven is like, now where did I put that hope sophomore? He was just, he was just here. Jesus, Jesus, have you seen that hope sophomore? No, you neither. Dang it. This always happens. It's not that kind of lost. But there is a real sort of losing, a real distance. And the one who does the losing is, of course, ourselves through sin. That's what it means to be lost. But I don't want to actually focus on getting lost these days. I think what's more important and more interesting from our gospel passage is coming home. And what does it take to return to the Father when we've been lost? And there are a couple sort of key parts to this story. First is there's the son recognizing that he is leaving his father. He acknowledges to himself sort of quite plainly, I'm making a choice, I'm out of here. That's number one. Number two, there is the suffering that's a result of the choice that he has made. Third, there's the memory of his father's goodness. Fourth, he knows the road home. He knows how to get there. Fifth, there's the willingness to humble himself. Sixth, there's the actual choice to get on the road and to go home and to confess his sins to his father. And finally, there's the welcome by the father back into the family. I want to look at some of these parts in, in more detail and just kind of reflect upon them. And I think the, the first one is actually uh, quite important. Um, the recognition that we've left through sin, that we have somehow departed from God. And I think that's extremely important. And there's a, there's a certain honesty that goes about uh, in that, in, in saying, look, I, you know, I know what I should do and I'm not going to do it and okay, you know, I'm not going to live a good Christian life. There's a certain honesty in that, and I I was actually kind of struck when I was uh, teaching sacraments to sophomores. It was my first semester, and I was preparing them for uh, confession, because we had all school confessions, and I'm teaching sacraments, so I thought I should prepare them. And, you know, I said, now, one of the things about, you know, confession is you you have to have a, a firm purpose of amendment, which means you have to be willing not, you don't, it's not just regretting the past, but willing to try and change in the future. Not a guarantee, but a willingness to try. And after the day after the confessions, I 
did a poll. I said, all right, how many of you went to confession? And there was a cadre of boys who didn't raise their hands. And I knew they were all Catholic, and I was like, all right, guys, what's going on? And they're like, well, Father, you said if we weren't going to stop sinning, we shouldn't go. And I was like, well, that's really honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, and what's interesting is that, that before, I, before I left Fenwick, every single, I think, almost every single one of those boys came to me and said, Father, would you hear my confession? But there was an honesty to them saying, yeah. As opposed to, I think, a deeper level of self-deception, which we see in the first reading today from the Hebrews, which is they're going to they're gonna worship. They, think, they say they're going to keep worshiping the one God, but they totally disregard him. So if you read the text carefully, what you, what you see in it is that they never say, forget that guy who brought us out of Egypt. We're going to worship this golden calf thing. That's not what they say. They say, the guy who brought us out of Egypt is the golden calf. So they don't have the honesty to, to, to claim what they're doing, which is the old switcheroo, you know. So honesty is important in admitting, yeah, I'm making a choice not to do what I know I should. Second part there is the suffering. And this is something St. Thomas points out when he's, when he's talking about the sins against the Holy Spirit. And he says, part of the goodness of God is that he builds into sin two incentives to stop sinning. The first is suffering. That sin never works out quite as well as we think it is. Either because there's bad things happen as a result or there's just diminishing returns. And secondly, we feel ashamed about what we've done. And these, there are these two things, the suffering and the shame, that are incentives to stop sinning and to get back on the right road. So that, suffer, so that is built in by God into sin to help us. The next thing is the, the memory of the Father's goodness. You know, and the son, I mean, this is a total betrayal of, of his father. You know, he's, he's taken half his property, you know, he's disgraced the family name, um, and everybody knows what's been going on and what he's, what he's been up to. So this is a, a major offense against the father. And yet, the son's memory of his father's goodness is still strong enough that he thinks, if I go back, at least he'll treat me like one of his workers. And he treated them pretty well. So there's this memory of the father's goodness. And I think that's really important. I read an article which said, the most frequent imperative verb that God uses in the Old Testament is remember. Remember. It's not thou shalt not, it's remember. Because that memory anchors us in the reality of who God is. So important in coming back. I think frankly one of the one of the, the burdens of your generation of Catholics here and my generation as well is that so much of that memory of the Father and of the faith was not passed on. You know, in the last 60 years, there's been a near total breakdown, if we're honest, a near total breakdown in terms of teaching the faith. And, and I think that's really unfortunate for a lot of reasons, but also because it, it means, like, what are you coming back to? You know, people, including myself, just have these vague slash 
somewhat terrible memories of you know grade school catechesis and receiving sacraments that we didn't really understand. I learned more about confirmation from the bishop's homily the night of confirmation than I did in eight months of previous instructions. Like, wow, this is amazing, you know? I'm really excited now. And I hadn't been before. I mean, it was just, it was sad. So that memory is important. And also then learning about the faith is important, that that gets embedded in our, in our memory. And then there's not just the memory of the Father's goodness, but there's the knowledge of the road home. Knowledge of the road home. And this is, this is crucially important, to know the right way back. So if we look at our second reading, St. Paul is, is recounting um, his, his uh, earlier life and, and how you know, the amazing mercy that God has appointed him as this uh, apostle and, and minister. And he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and arrogant, but I've been mercifully treated because I acted out of ignorance in my unbelief. So this is someone who thought he was serving God by jailing and killing Christians. He thought that, that was the service that he was rendering to Almighty God. That's how he was fulfilling his religious obligations. Um, and, there's, and he recognizes there's this real ignorance of what does it mean to serve God? What does it mean to go back to him? He doesn't know. And this brings up, I think, a, a, a couple crucial um, points. There's a difference between the supernatural virtue of faith and the supernatural virtue of love. And this is, this is actually one of the disputes between Catholics and Protestants at the Reformation, um, that uh, some of the Protestant reformers denied the fact that you could keep your faith and lose your love. And the Council of Trent, the bishops with the Pope met and said, no, it is actually possible to keep your faith and lose your love. Now, it's a dead faith. It's not going to get you into heaven. But you can still know things about God. And that's the position of the son. He knows the road back. He just chooses not to love his father. That's why he leaves. Okay. But St. Paul was someone who, it was the problem with his faith itself. Like, he didn't know what it meant to serve God. So that's a crucial distinction to keep in mind. Secondly, it, it, it leads into the point that what we believe actually matters. What we believe actually matters. I think, especially in the last 150 years, there's been this strong pull towards religious indifferentism. You know, oh, what you, what you, whatever you believe, hmm, doesn't matter. You have your religion, I have mine. We have our nice little traditions. We move on with our lives, and it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And it's a little like saying, well, it doesn't matter what newspaper you read. It doesn't matter. But if you know anybody who really enjoys reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, none of them, I guarantee you, I will bet money, none of them think that the New York Times is the same as the Wall Street Journal. Not a chance. But then why, why would we say that about religion? We don't say it about newspapers. They have a lot in common. They're printed on paper, you know, different size font, left to right, top to bottom, editorials in the back. But they're not the same. And if you want big differences, I mean, you could talk about, you know, the Aztecs who offered to the sun god the beating hearts of their enemies. And Christians who offer again the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ under the form of bread and wine. 
there are similarities, but there are a whole lot of differences, and they matter. And it's not just that the ideas of, of faith that matter, it's you know, ideas of, of morals. They're big questions, you know. Is racism actually a sin or not? Is abortion the taking of an innocent human life or not? Is sex outside of marriage perfectly harmless and fun or not? Is caring for the poor mandatory or not? The answer to those questions are big and have a lot of implications for our holiness and for the world around us. Those things matter. And so it points to this old but important distinction between true and false religion, that there are actually bad ways of worshiping God. False religion, golden calf. True religion, obeying the commandments, just as as an example. So what we believe actually matters. The road that the Son chooses back to the Father matters. And so there there is actually a right answer. And I think one of the great dangers now, you know, in addition to this sort of indifferentism about religion, I think a close, sort of the modern incarnation of that is being spiritual but not religious. And I think that's a very sort of dangerous place to be because it's deciding that you need to go somewhere but not knowing where it is you need to go but trying really hard to get there. Maybe. And that can lead you very, bless you, a long way in the wrong direction. And there's also the fact that if you don't believe in something, well, you're liable to believe anything. You know, it's not, it's not an accident that a lot of the Nazi hierarchy, which particularly despised the Christianity that they were born into, also were big fans of astrology and, you know, card reading and all voodoo and race theory and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just like all that crazy crept into their lives because they pushed out true religion. So what, what we believe really matters. But I think the biggest problem with the idea of being spiritual but not religious is what is it that we put at the center of things? What does it mean to be spiritual? And I think a lot of times it comes down to our feelings. I know I, I've told this before, I think maybe two years ago on a homily, but I'll mention it again because it just it sticks out in my mind. There's a Dominican brother of mine who's this good old boy from Texas and he's got the accent, you know, marine haircut and all that sort of thing. And he's got this brother who's like the opposite, you know, tatted out, you know, all over earrings and, you know, not practicing religious in the least bit. And, and he has a girlfriend who, you know, same. And so this Dominican brother of mine, we'll call him Fred. So, so Fred uh, sits down one day with uh, his uh, brother and the girlfriend and says, yeah, I've decided I'm going to join a religious life and I'm going to become a Catholic priest. <laughs> and the girlfriend's response is, that is so amazing. Like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And you know, sometimes I just like to feel with my body. And Fred is like, okay. 
I just, I, I just picture it like you, you oh. but it's like, well, what else are you going to feel with, you know? I, <laughs> but the problem, the problem with, with putting so much emphasis on feelings is that you are giving central focus and command and control to the part of ourselves that is fickle and irrational and not controllable even for the very holy. I mean, it's like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. This is a bad idea. Don't do it. So what is the way home? Ultimately, Jesus says it's himself. You know, at the Last Supper, when he says, you know where I am going, and Philip responds, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we follow you on the way? He says, Philip, have you not been with me all this time and still you don't understand? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's Jesus Christ who is the way. And the way that we encounter the way is through the gifts that he gives us, through the scriptures that tell about him, through the sacraments of the church where his power comes into our earth, through the whole tradition passed down by Christ and the apostles to the church. And it's that tradition that, that keeps us in contact with the living will of God. So I want to leave you with this quote from Scripture from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So just close your eyes and, and we'll meditate on this for a minute. Jeremiah says, Stand by the ancient roads and ask the pathways of old, which is the way to good, and follow it, and you will find rest for your soul.